Well, aloha from Maui, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. This is Michael Benner, your host for the Mystery School every week. Happy to be here. It's a beautiful day in Maui. We've had several days of rain, and this morning I woke up to sunshine, a beautiful rainbow, and uh, blue sky, white puffy clouds, and it's very, very green, 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 green. Very beautiful day. And I hope uh, spring is beginning to spring itself upon you, wherever you happen to be, that things are beginning to warm up a little bit. Winter is nice, but about this time time of year, I remember when I lived back east in Michigan, boy, about this time of year, I was going crazy for a little bit of blue sky. You know, it wasn't the snow, it wasn't even the cold weather that bothered me so much. It was the lack of sunlight. You know, come February or March, it was like, please, let me just see the sun, a little bit of blue sky, a little little bit of warmth on my body. I'd feel so much better. And, uh, of course, that was like a thousand years ago. Now we know a lot about the importance of getting a full spectrum of light. And uh, you can buy these full spectrum light bulbs, which I think are a real good idea. They're a little pricey, but it's a good investment to have a full range of white light available to you during those long winter months. So if you get the winter blues, or what they call SAD, seasonal affective disorder, uh, Get yourself some full-spectrum lighting. really helps. White light. Okay, today uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that part of Buddhist philosophy called the fetters. F like Frank, E-T-T-E-R-S. You probably know the word unfettered, to be unrestrained. Well, a fetter is a rope or uh, a chain, anything that binds you, like a set of handcuffs, would be fetters. And Buddha talked about there being ten fetters. This is 2,500 years ago when the prince Siddhartha obtained his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. And in addition to the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, Um, there are a number of other teachings or sutras and one of the principal teachings is around the idea that there are uh, ten ties that bind Um, it's like ropes that hold a hot air balloon to the ground and to release the fetters to cut those ropes so that you can become liberated so you can emancipate yourself and rise upward toward a true sense of who you are is of course um, what developing consciousness or uh, enhancing your awareness is really all about so we're going to talk today just about the first three fetters as I described in the newsletter this week those uh, are the first to be addressed they come in order and as we address the first three uh, 
of these chains that bind, these attachments, as they're sometimes called, that we hold on to out of fear. You know, the fear response is to make a fist, right? We carry our anxiety and our stress as muscular tension, and the tight muscle is a creates a holding on. So if we look at what are we holding on to and why are we holding on to it, we're holding on to things not that we love, we're holding on to things that we fear. Now that's very profound right here at the beginning to understand that that which we attach to, those things that do bind us and hinder our growth, um, are the things that we fear. The wonderful thing about love and enlightenment is that it's everywhere equally present, corresponds to the primary element of air, where the physical body is earth, the emotional nature is water, the mental nature is fire. Well, consciousness or spiritual love or the soul so to speak, corresponds to air because it's in the earth and it's in the water and it's in fire. Uh, air is everywhere. Consciousness as love is everywhere equally present, so you don't need to hold on to it. I mean, it would be like a fish uh, carrying water with it to make sure when it arrives at its destination water will be there. Well, <laughs> there is no place in the fish's universe that isn't wet. And so, too, there's no place in the physical or metaphysical realms that are not imbued with consciousness, with awareness or love. So you don't have to hold on to it. You know, if you love it, let it go, that whole metaphysical concept. And if it comes back to you, it's yours. And if it leaves, it never was. Sort of like a puppy. You know, you, you don't want to let go of the dog. You're afraid it's going to take off. It, you love it so much. But if you hold on to the dog and refuse to let it go, then once it struggles and does get loose, it's probably not going to come back to you because you're not all that safe. So... Love is a letting go. All letting go is love. All love is letting go. And then conversely, all holding on is fear. Doesn't that make sense? Except what a paradox. If I'm afraid of it, why would I hold on to it? Well, in practical terms, we hold on to what terrifies us because at least it's familiar. Right? Did you know I was going to say that? We love our pain not because we're masochistic or even sadistic. It's just so familiar. My helplessness and my victimization and how would I appeal for sympathy if I didn't have my pain, my old familiar self-torture. So, you know, we'd rather have familiar pain than unfamiliar freedom. It's, again, very paradoxical, very contrary to common sense, but that's the way human beings behave. And so all holding on is fear. Fetters is fear. It's ignorance. It's 
it's it's what we do not understand about the nature of reality that causes us to uh, to suffer. And uh, so there are these hindrances, these fetters, and I thought we'd talk about the first three a little bit, and then go uh, to your questions and your comments about this topic, but anything else that has to do with personal and spiritual development. Could be something going on in your personal life as well. And the kind of women and men who are attracted to this mystery school class every Sunday or who listen to the podcast um, are the kind of people that have the ability to see the continuity so that we can jump around a little bit from one issue, one topic, one subject or another, and uh, people still get the larger view, which is, again, moving from fear to love, moving from ignorance to understanding, moving from the shadow out into the light. And uh, so let's do that. Let's talk about the fetters a little bit. The um, the first and most important fetter is the personality belief, the belief that we are separated individuals and that we live in a world of separated form by all appearances. Uh, two physical objects, we're told, cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And that makes it very difficult to experience love. So we reach out to hold a hand or to get a hug. Um, we, we try to bring ourselves through harmony into a communion with the people that we love that we feel safe with in spite of the fact that we seem to be trapped in these separated bodies we let me say that differently and we do in fact seem to be trapped we are in fact trapped in these separated bodies but the point i'm making is that it seems that that's the self. That's the nature of the self. To be this self and not that other thing. So we have a view of the world as me and you. And you are not me and I am not you. Or us and them. And then we overlay right and wrong, good and bad, this dualistic thinking on top of that, right? This and that, <laughs> this one and that one, failing to recognize that one ultimately means we're all the same. We're all part of one thing. It's the total one that we seem to be overlooking when we rely upon our physical senses to observe 
the separated ones, this one, as opposed to that one. And the word opposed is important in all of this as well, because part of this dualistic thinking, this binary thinking, is if you are other than, you're not only different than me or different from me, you are quite likely, if you disagree in any way, and who doesn't, we all disagree on some things, then that disagreement, that otherness, is often seen as opposition. All differences are opposites to the binary thinker. Well, that means anybody who disagrees with you is a threat to you. And that certainly is going to compound your fear and the holding on that uh, the attachments, the fetters that bind us. Does that make sense? So this first fetter is maybe the most important one of all. And the place to begin your personal development, your personal growth, your enlightenment, is to challenge the idea with study, with meditation and contemplation, with a practice that allows you to develop your understanding of existence free from a notion that the only way for you to exist is to be separated and at a distance from everyone and everything else. Even our sense of divinity in the Western world, God itself, or himself in most people's minds, is separated. Again, we have these multiple definitions of the word one. There can be one as the totality, the oneness of a universe. Most people look beyond that to this one as opposed to that one, and then there's that one over there, and well, wait a minute, don't forget about this one. Well, I've already named four ones, don't you see? And so... In the monotheistic religions, especially Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you have this idea of one God, but it's separated from its creation. And any religious scholar will tell you divinity or God exists as a spirit that is everywhere equally present, And yet we continue in our minds and in our artwork, in our mythology, to visualize divinity or God as if it had a form, usually a human body, usually a body that causes him to appear as a European, (laughs) right? We make God in our image. We, We reverse the wisdom that we are in the image of the Creator and instead have the audacity to create the Creator in our image and project upon divinity all of our human weaknesses, anger and rage and jealousy and (laughs) envy 
and and call it religion. That there's nothing enlightened about that. So even the idea of God as the creator or the source of all things uh, has been separated, a separated self. God is a separated self. Now, the problem, I think the challenge with the teaching, again, because of the nature, especially in the West, of binary thinking, two hemispheres, a belief in absolutes, a rejection of the relative nature of truth in form. I mean, if if you're still stuck on absolutes and refuse to accept the relative nature of truth, then the challenge to you is to tell us when does slow become fast? When does small become really big? And is there such a thing as jumbo shrimp, right? It's all relative. Good, bad, large, small, fast, slow. Uh, if there are absolutes, and in most spiritual philosophy, the absolute is a synonym for the ultimate Godhead itself. God is the absolute, the totality, the universe, the one life, or the one thing. That's the only absolute. But its reflection in form, nothing absolute about it. It's all relative. Einstein came up with a theory of relativity. Even time and space is relative. Uh, time itself you think of as a great standard, but it's a function of how fast you move through space. The faster you move through space, the slower time goes. If you were to be able to move at some speed approaching the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, and you traveled to the nearest star, uh, might take, uh, let's see, 4.3 light years away. Let's say it took you five years to get to the nearest star and back again, 10-year trip, moving at nearly the speed of light. The Earth, even though you've only been gone 10 years, the Earth, relatively speaking, would have experienced 1,000 years, roughly, of time. You're gone for 10 years, but the Earth has experienced 1,000 years of history. Why? How could that be? Because time is relative. It's a function of how fast you move. And, and the faster you go, approaching the speed of light, the slower time goes. So this is a real challenge to thinking people to break free from absolutes, either or, everything or nothing, all right or all wrong, all differences or opposites. And it's not one of the ten fetters, but it bears upon all ten, this idea of absolutes. Again, the only absolute is in the theoretical idea of the physical world, the cosmos, being a reflection of some sort of energy. That there is energy behind the mass. And again, Einstein did that work as well. 
saying that energy and mass are two forms of the same thing and they're convertible. Right? They go back and forth. Mass is really energy slowed down to the point that it takes on this physical appearance and you can see light reflected off it in most cases and you call it real. All right, so this is the first fetter. The second fetter is just the idea of being skeptical or doubting the teachings of philosophy. In this case, the Buddhist philosophy, starting with the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. I'm going to go through this real quickly because I think most of you are already familiar with the Four Noble Truths. You should be at this time, by this time. Hold on a sec. Let me have a little sip of my morning mud here. The uh, first noble truth that occurred to Buddha when he received his enlightenment was that life is suffering. There is aging, there is sickness, there is death. And not just your own. There is the suffering in life of watching others that we love and care about grow old, become sick, and die. Um, <laughs> I remember helping one fellow, it must have been 20, 25 years ago now, uh, he came in with a whole bunch of problems. It was one of those uh, situations like when it rains, it pours. Everything in this guy's life was coming apart at the same time. And he started this laundry list of disasters in his life. And he finally got to what I thought was the bottom of the list, but it was really working his way up toward the top. He saved the worst for last. And that was that his dog died, his best friend in the whole world. And I'd helped many people with grieving. But uh, watching this guy, helping him deal with the loss of his, of his dog, uh, was, it was just heartbreaking. You know, the, the real loss that this fellow felt. And because of his uh, religious teaching, he was under the impression that there were no dogs in heaven. The dogs did not have a soul, and he was never going to see that dog or experience the love that he had for that dog. But we talked about the fact that his love for the dog didn't really come from the dog, that the only love any of us ever feels for animals or people or anyone else, anything else, is our love that was radical and new for him. But the suffering that is the first noble truth is guaranteed. You will have your share of broken hearts. And this is part of how the heart grows. If our heart couldn't be broken from time to time, it would crystallize and harden and cease to grow. And so we go through these stages where these growing pains of broken hearts. And that's a guarantee, the first noble truth. Life is suffering. Now, it's, it's not necessarily torture to live. 
the word suffering is a translation that can also mean discontentment or just a lack of satisfaction that life doesn't really fulfill you the way you would like it to. It does not live up to the promise of, uh, well, in the West we call it the American dream of uh, finding the perfect spouse and having the kids and the perfect little bungalow or the white picket fence and and the roses and, you know, one dog, one cat, and the SUV in the driveway. It, it Even if you get all of that stuff, uh, that white picket fence, you got to keep painting the damn thing. And, you know, then, as they say, the dog dies and the car breaks down and your spouse is yelling at you, blaming you for their dissatisfaction. And so it's... It's a guarantee that there's going to be pain, and it's often said that pain is guaranteed. The suffering is optional. What you do with it and, and how well you suffer through the pain of living, that's, that's all the first noble truth. Uh, the second noble truth is we set ourselves up for this stuff with our desire nature, our refusal to accept things as they are and instead our need for things to be other than they are, especially when there's nothing we can do about it. So often it seems our need to change things, to manipulate or force them to be other than they are, is greatest when we have the least control or influence over the way things are like trying to please other people. I mean, have you noticed how easily the person you're trying to please can decide to become unpleasable? And you're screwed. And you feel frustrated because you try and try and try to please this person. Might be your spouse. Might be one of your parents might be one of your kids, and you you feel like your best is not good enough, no matter how hard you try. It's just not good enough. But you keep trying because you think that's your job. And to realize that this person is unpleasable and it's more about them than you, there's really not much you can do, Right? The old uh, idea of you can lead a horse to water. Well, hopefully you can make the horse thirsty. That would be one way to get them to drink, but there are limitations on what we can do. You know, the serenity prayer and the wisdom to know the difference. What can I change? And what are the limits of my ability to manage or control or or influence, because there are limits. So it's the second noble truth, our desire for things to be other than they are, our desire for material things, and the belief that our attachment to stuff and money and power is going to make us happy. Um, Or an attachment to an identity of being young and beautiful. Um, Boy, that's such a setup. You know, when First of all, beauty is not in appearances, but in 
the substance below the surface. Uh, it could be a hundred years old and wrinkled and withered and worn and tired and be one of the most beautiful creatures on the planet. Not by appearance, perhaps, because there's a lot of mileage on that old self, but certainly real beauty from within can be cultivated, developed, uh, released out into the world. The third noble truth, then, is basically stop it. It's the Dr. Phil solution. <laughs> it's the the uh, the medical doctor in vaudeville with the rubber chicken. And that old joke where the guy says, Doc, it hurts when I do this. And rubber chicken doctor hits him with his rubber chicken and says, then don't do it and stop doing that. Right? Uh, that's basically what Buddha said is the third noble truth. Stop it. Cut it out. You know, if life is suffering, number one, because number two, you have these desires for things to be other than they are, and you refuse to accept it, then three, stop it. Learn to accept and be accepting. Not as the end of things, but as the beginning. And number four is what do I do instead? And that's the Eightfold Noble Path, or the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's a way of living, right action, right speech, right thought. Um, you know, having ethics and values and being a good person. And uh, doing your best to be of service, to be kind, to be loving, compassionate. And uh, for another show, we can talk about the Noble Eightfold Path. But those are the four noble truths. And the second fetter is to be skeptical, or to doubt, or to wonder about that. Right? So that's, that's the second attachment of the ten fetters. We're going to talk only about the first three today. They're the most important. And number three is a adherence to mere rites and rituals and, and ceremonies, religious dogma, and superstition. Buddha said, I don't have the direct quote. Here I have a phrase. Uh, this paraphrase is one of the sutras. Buddha, like Christ, never wrote anything down. So we're paraphrasing all of this. But Buddha is said to have said that neither the repetition of Holy Scripture, nor self-torture, nor sleeping on the ground, nor the repetition of prayers or penances, hymns, charms, mantras, incantations, and invocations can bring us the real happiness of nirvana. Instead, Buddha emphasized the importance of making individual effort in order to achieve our spiritual goals. He 
likened it to a man wanting to cross a river, sitting down on the shore, on the bank of the river, and praying that he would be on the other side. But, you know, as wonderful as prayer is, it's not going to get you over the river. At some point, after the prayer, stand up and make an effort to build a bridge or build for yourself a raft of some sort or learn to swim. <laughs> you got to make an effort to get over the bridge. So he talked about the contagion, like the contagious nature of a disease, the contagion of religious dogmas and rules. And that's not sufficient. Uh, nor is good work simply doing for others. You know, what, one of the, I, I believe, really, uh, well, there are just so many little jewels of wisdom in Eastern philosophy, and the idea that karma is in your intention, not in your action, is, to me, just brilliant. Um, it's found in Christianity, too, but it's not appreciated near as much. The idea of you could be a generous person or create, let me say it more carefully, create an appearance of being a kind and generous person. You could build uh, the wing of a hospital. Let's say you contribute millions of dollars so that the hospital can expand and build this new wing, and maybe even insist that it be dedicated to children with cancer, right? And by all appearances, what a what a generous thing to do. But if then you insist they put your name on it, it's the <laughs> it's the Joe Blow wing, right? So that forevermore people will remember that it was you that was so generous. Well, then your intention, this goes back to the first fetter, is to underscore and reinforce the lie that you exist as a separated self. You do it to cre create the appearance of generosity and, and charity and philanthropy, but in fact, it's the self that you're serving. Uh, I've worked in business for four or five years with a man that talks about this as the difference between give to give and give to get. And giving to get <laughs> is really not giving, is it? Don't even bother. If, you, if you've got an ulterior motive, then don't, there's no point in deceiving yourself and deluding yourself into believing that you're going to advance yourself uh, and improve your lot in life by being this charitable person. You're just creating the appearance. In, in Christianity, there are the stories of the people that, that do the same thing or who similarly pray in public, you know, who go through these, this big deal about praying in public and demonstrating for others, how holy I am. 
and then going out into the public square to pray. No, you're you're doing that to build up the false self, your egoic nature. And so the intention here is false. The intention is to reinforce that ego, that phony self, that separated self that you've always thought that you are. You know, going back for a second to this first fetter, which I think is the biggest challenge of all. Again, there's ten all together. We're just talking about the first three today. And and this 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 first attachment, the idea that we exist as a separated self, I began to say ten or fifteen minutes ago, and I want to go back and underscore it. What is challenging for most people is this idea that if I'm not the separated self, then there is no self and I don't exist at all. Um, I would have you consider that there's a middle ground. Whether we call that the soul that is never separated, but as Plato said, shares the ground of God or works in a group so that God is one thing, the totality of all life. The soul works in groups or ashrams and is never alone or separated. And then only, thirdly, in the physical world are we, as spiritual beings, dropped into these prisons of flesh, these, uh, what did Sting call them, soul cages, right? These prisons that we live in throughout our lives, fearing that this is who I actually am. Well, to die to that self, to give up the separated self and all of your selfishness and self-centeredness and concern about the self, doesn't mean your only alternative is to cease to exist. There is a middle ground, again, could be your concept of soul. I like the idea of considering, as Plato said, that you share the ground of God, that as a spiritual being, let's say between incarnations, right, the soul on its own plane, that you're aware of the fact that there is just one thing at work in the universe, but you have your own distinct point of view. Um, you know, Christ said something about my father's house has many mansions. My father's house has many mansions. People often say, well, that's a reference to reincarnation to multiple existences. Those many mansions would have many windows. And each one of those windows and every one of those mansions would have a different point of view. And if you look at the uniqueness of every individual, the, the absolute, genuine, authentic individuality and diversity of life, it would seem that there's value in having that unique point of view, that particular combination of talents and abilities that you have, 
I don't think we have to give that up in order to challenge this first fetter that you exist as a separated being. The way it works out is you just stop being selfish. You you stop developing your sense of individuality at the expense of other people and put the greater good ahead of your own selfish intention. And that's a lot easier to do than you might think once you realize that you are still part of the greater good. If you work for your community, for example, you know, politically there's a lot of talk now about self-interest and the motivation of, of, uh, of the self. That's why communism and socialism will never work, the capitalist assures us, because people are mo- motivated primarily by self-interest. Well, does that mean that we have no interest in the community? That there's no point in being a volunteer or joining a service club like the Kiwanis or the Rotarians or the Seroptimists because all of that community work is not going to benefit you, the separated self. But it does. <laughs> you know it does. To, to be interested in your community, you get a benefit from that, but not as a separated individual. You get a benefit as a member of the community. And and to think globally, but act locally, to, as Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. These are not opposites, except to the simplest bifurcated brain, the, the binary thinker who sees everything as or, and few things as and. You see, so work for the human race, work for the one life the human kingdom, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the mineral kingdom, Gaia, our solar system, our galaxy, our universe, the multiverses. And you'll be included in that greater good. You're part of that greater good. It's just the idea of going it alone. and (laughs) Even in a marriage, it's like, you know, there's some friction between the couple and those, uh, screw you, right? You're on your own, I'm on my own. You know, to fight for that separated self, the defensiveness that people express. Who are you defending when you become defensive? You're defending the lie that you exist as a separated self because of the appearance, uh, the, the experience of being in this separated body. Uh, that's why this is hell for most people. You know, it's, it's the eternal damnation is to be trapped in this life, reincarnated over and over and over again, because we keep trying to fill this separate vessel, and there is no separate vessel to fill. We keep trying to serve the lonely individual, and there is no lonely individual here. Just those that have turned off their hearts and their minds, 
shut themselves down. So there is, especially in Buddhism, a middle way or a third way, another way of looking at it. This idea of ego death can be very intimidating and really frightening. Um, Like if I kill my ego, what's left? Well, indeed, that's the question. If you kill this sense of self, this false illusion or delusion, that you exist primarily as this fleshy cage, what is left? That's the question I put to you. All right, so um, let's go to the Q&A then on this topic, the the first three of the ten fetters, or on some other topic or issue that you may have for us today. And again, you can submit with the text box on the page, or... um, if you're on the telephone, press star 2 and uh, Skype. Star 2 on the Skype dialer will indicate that your hand is raised, and you can do that at any time. And I'll call on you in a minute. Let's start, um, let's start with the text messages. And uh, Nick in Pasadena. Nick submitted this even before we began today, which uh, you're able to do. And he's uh, making reference to the uh, Dalai Lama quotation I put in the newsletter this week. Nick says, uh, one of the reasons, or maybe the reason, the Dalai Lama is here, meaning on earth, I guess, is the joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. It seems to me that a shift in perception is what the Dalai Lama is teaching. Is this shift in perception for all of us to attain? Well, yeah. I think, sure. Will we all attain it? No. (laughs) Not anytime soon. Will in the end of time after thousands or tens of thousands of incarnations will all souls be saved well this has been debated from the beginning of time by greater philosophers than me that's for sure Um, as far back as Pythagoras uh, there was a debate about whether all souls would be redeemed at some point And uh, this was long before the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the incarnation of divinity, according to Christian belief. Saw an interesting commentary on this yesterday in the Science Channel. Get off on a little tangent here for a minute. And uh, this program on the Science Channel was talking about the Vatican's official astronomer. I didn't know the Vatican had an astronomer, much less an official astronomer. Um, They only apologized to Copernicus uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, I think. Uh, And he was saying that if extraterrestrial life is discovered in the universe, that will not contradict the teachings of Christianity, and that Catholics will be okay with this appearance 
with this discovery, better said, of extraterrestrial life. And at first I'm thinking, well, what difference does that make? But then I began to realize as this program went on and the narrative sort of took me to, well, if your religion is based on this teaching that God itself incarnated as a mortal being because they equate the Son of God with the Father. Uh, The challenge of the whole Trinity as three co-equal parts of God has been a difficult teaching for the Church for the 1,500 years that it's been around. It really took 500 years for it to come together. And then another five or 600 years of so-called dark ages before there began to be universities and people were encouraged to educate themselves and learn to read and, and think for themselves. It hasn't really been that long. But what are the implications of God coming to this one lonely planet in this one solar system out on the edge of this one insignificant galaxy in a universe of 150 billion galaxies, each with 200 billion stars, most of them with planets. I mean, did, did, does Christ have to go to all those planets? So... Uh, raised an interesting question that I'd never really thought of in terms of if there is evidence of life on other planets, why is it so threatening to religion? Well, I don't think it is threatening to all religions. Certainly the Eastern philosophies, the, the Buddhism, which is more a philosophy than a religion, would not be threatened by this. Um, really only Christianity, which is the biggest religion in the world, seemingly the most popular religion in the world, I can see where they would be challenged. And uh, therefore almost required to believe that in this this mind-boggling universe, the size and scope of the universe so immense that human life exists only on one, one planet. Sort of hard to believe. So what is the shift that Nick is talking about? Um, That we're not here to celebrate our lives. You know when the teenager says, it's my life, I'll do what I want? That's about as immature as it gets. It's not your life. You didn't do a damn thing to bring yourself here. And yeah, you can do what you want. But uh, there are many rewards in considering your options, in being kind when you don't feel like it, when somebody treats you badly, in practicing forgiveness and compassion, when your brain is telling you they don't deserve it. Well, what's deserving got to do with it? It's in your interest to be kind. It's in my interest to practice forgiving somebody that my ego really does not want to forgive. I feel vulnerable and in greater danger. Like 
You know, I, I can't trust this individual. They hurt me. They lied to me. They betrayed me. They, they told lies behind my back. You want me to forgive them and let that go? Right? That's one way of talking about the shift in perception that Nick's referring to. You know, that this first fetter, what are the implications of giving up this idea that you exist? Not merely as a unique point of view, but as a separated self. That's the source of all of our fear and anxiety and stress. John Bowles is with us this morning. Hello, John. He says, Aloha, Michael Johns, back home in Pittsburgh. Having joined us at the uh, retreat a few weeks ago. In Van Nuys, California, John Walling says, Hello, your insights about um, Keith Olbermann's journalistic and social impact. Was it about, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> Let me have a little sip of my coffee here. Was it about uh, schmoozing to appeal for more corporate appetite of Comcast for merger or acquisition? Um, not sure what you're referring to, John. Um, some comment I made recently, apparently, about Keith Olbermann. And I can't give you the feedback you want on that because I'm not sure what I may have been talking about there. I think it may have been a comment I made about NBC not being all that progressive and on the side of truth, justice, and the real American way for their liberal stance that ultimately all they really wanted was better ratings. And that that used to be about making more money, but now it's about getting purchased by an ever larger corporation. You know, <laughs> that's why that's why Twitter doesn't have to worry about not having any income stream or having any advertising, because their whole intention is to get purchased <laughs> by some larger corporation. It's an interesting shift in economics. I'm sorry, John. I, I can't really comment on that. I'm not sure what you're referring to. In Oregon, Bruce is with us today. He says, aloha, peace to everyone. Regarding fear, any old surfer knows that there is no fun until he or she sets aside their fear and takes off on the big wave. It's scary, but worth the risk. Now, I've often talked about the difference between fear and excitement as being a very thin line and uh, challenging for a lot of people to consider that feeling weak in the, in the knees and uh, girded loins and butterflies in your stomach, heart palpitations, a lump in your throat and a sweaty brow, th these feelings can be described either as fear or excitement. They feel the same way. Uh, there's not much of a difference between oh no and oh boy, except for breathing and letting go or holding on. So 
So as we said at the top of the class today, if you're holding on, your breathing will be shallow and you will experience these feelings as fear. They'll hold you back. But if you breathe and let go of the very same feelings and step into it, then those identical feelings in your body you will describe as excitement and motivation. And, oh boy, (laughs) here we go, right? I mean, anything that's really exciting has to have an element of fear. Whether you're rock climbing or whitewater rafting or bungee jumping or parachuting out of a perfectly good airplane or whatever it happens to be, if there's not an element of risk and some fear involved, it'll probably be hard to find any excitement in it. From Albuquerque, Donna is with us again, and she says, heavy subject, very heavy subject, we'll contemplate this. I'd like to see a lighter and more fun subject next week. (laughs) How much more fun can you have than the good news that you are not your fear, you are love instead? That's about as fun and light as I go. (laughs) That's great news to me. Nothing to be afraid of. You're not who you always feared you were. A friend of mine on Facebook this morning uh, wrote something about, I realize today, I have to paraphrase paraphrase, uh, Fred, he said, I just realized today that I'm envious of good-looking young people in sports cars. (laughs) And then he made some crack about being short, bald, and Jewish. And I said, well, I'm neither of those. I'm not short or bald or Jewish, but I have the same voice in my head, too. It's the ego. It's lying to both of us. Ignore it and remind yourself of who you really are. We are our love. We are love. We are the love we're looking for. Not only do we have access to the love, we are that love. We exist as an embodiment of love. Yeehaw! You want fun and excitement? (laughs) There you go. Okay. In Los Angeles, Tom Thin. Hello, Tom. He says, fundamentalism in religious terms is by definition attachment to the world rather than the message the word points to. It's such a rigid practice to believe in anything at all. If we are as a species, if if we as a species could just replace the word believe with understanding as a general term for talking points, since the only constant is change, then maybe that one word in concept could mend the rift of adversarial conflict. Uh, Your point about intention versus action reminds me of the case of uh, Tim DeChristopher versus the state of Utah, where the judge would not allow DeChristopher's intention of saving public land from the oil and gas companies 
their exploration, to be presented as evidence. It was not legal for G.W. Bush to, uh, to allow to put up for auction, and so that was not allowed as evidence either. The quote Dorothy Parker, uh, or to quote Dorothy Parker, you can lead a <laughs> you can lead a horde of culture, but you can't make her think. So, how do we inspire fundamentalists without creating more adversarial conflict, which only creates friction, which in turn causes breakdown? Well, Tommy, I, I don't know. I think your use of the word understanding is a good one, and the idea that love and understanding are really the same concept, but you can't do that with belief. Belief is not understanding, but love is. Or There is, as you've indicated, a big difference between belief and understanding. But understanding is superior, there's no question. Understanding trumps knowledge. We can have a world of knowledge, but if we don't really understand the implications and ramifications, what good is being knowledgeable? So we could educate the fundamentalist, make them knowledgeable, and they still wouldn't understand. I think we need to do more than educate the mind. I think we need to stimulate the heart. And that understanding is less a mental thing than it is a spiritual well, at first an emotional and then a spiritual thing. How do we help them to understand? Well, fundamentalism is rooted in fear and ignorance. And I'm sorry if that sounds judgmental. It's not judgmental. It's simply an observation. A fundamentalist doesn't want to understand. It's the third fetter we talked today of adherence to dogma and rule because I can't figure it out for myself and I don't want to really understand it. I'm too busy over here watching bad TV or pursuing money or trying to get leverage over the other guy and beat him at this game we're playing. Don't have time to understand. How many Christians do we know who've ever read the Bible. And uh, I suppose I could ask that question rhetorically of any religious person. Uh, whatever their particular religion, have you studied all the others? Uh, who's interested in comparative religion? Or philosophy. I had a guy tell me once, philosophy has nothing to do with spirituality. I said, really? Have you read any? <laughs> what are you talking about? Let's go to the telephones. Uh, we've got a couple of people that uh, would like to come on. Let's see. I don't have a name for this person, but I know you're in Los Angeles on a cell phone. That's the best I can do to identify. Hi, you're in the Wisdom School with Michael Benner. Hi, Michael. This is this is Virginia Jimenez, Virginia. Oh, hi, Virginia. Hello. Ha Welcome. Ha Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> Thanks again for making possible the Maui retreat. I enjoy very much meeting you and 
Doreen and Steve and everybody else. Well, likewise, after having uh, talked to you on the Thursday night video conference and also here in the Sunday class, it was great meeting you also. Uh, you know, Steve and I have decided to do this again, but uh, we're, we at one point were thinking about doing as many as 20 people or even 25, but we're not going to do more than 10 or 12 ever. We had eight this time. And I think more than 10 or 12 would just be too many people. I really loved how well we did get to know each other. And yeah. Each, you know, each of the participants got to know each other. and That seemed to me to become one of the unexpected but really wonderful benefits of the whole thing. Yeah, it was a small and intimate group, and it allowed for a lot of introspection and for me, it was like a Pandora box, opening a Pandora box, so I'm still sorting things too, but it's very good, lots of feathers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, in, in terms of um, the program, the show today, uh, one of the um, biggest challenges that I see is like understanding all this wonderful, wonderful information intellectually, but to be able to apply it with wisdom uh, when your buttons are pushed as you go on your daily life and, you know, deal with life and relationships and all of that. And I'm wondering, well, one of the problems, I think, um, it has to do with the understanding of the lack of understanding of our existence, especially in terms of our emotions um, that you were talking about, or you mentioned something about, you know, anger, jealousy, doubt, um, as human weaknesses, and I'm wondering if, like, if instead of seeing those human, um, you know, that part of our humanity as as tools, or so, as our teachers, something that we can learn from, and instead of, like, just, like, just, you know, stop it, don't go there, <laughs> see it as a teaching tool, like, if, I'm, if something makes me jealous, then maybe that's something is telling me that there's something in there that I, you know, I'm interested that maybe I could pursue. So instead of seeing it as a negative, maybe I could see it as a positive. And yeah. instead of seeing that as a human weakness, maybe seeing it as just part of my humanness and learn from it. I wonder yeah. if Definitely. that would help. <laughs> I think that's a very important point. We often make the parallel to the lights on the, dashboard of the car in that uh, right. we don't we don't really want those lights to come on those idiot lights as they're called or the gauges uh, to indicate a problem we we just assume they stay uh, uh, remain as indicators that everything is okay but we do not benefit ourselves by ignoring them or covering them over we could get a big heavy piece of brown wrapping paper and cover up the dashboard and believe there, now nothing can ever go wrong with a car because I won't know about it. Um, it's a very good point. Many of us uh, live our life that way. I used to tell a story about when I first came to L.A. and I had no money and no job, and I was driving this beat-up old van way out on the edge of town, and it started making a horrible noise, and I just turned the radio up real loud. And, and thought for a half a second there, now nothing can happen. But 
you know, even in my worst moments, I'm not that stupid. I <laughs> mm-hmm. That's denial. So, yeah, every problem that we have and every heartache that we experience is an opportunity to awaken. Um, how do we do that? Well, again, there is the teaching. There is the Dharma. This is the second fetter to to practice what we've been taught to study, to read books. There's no shortage of inspirational literature, um, not only from Buddhism, but this whole field of self-improvement, so-called, often in the bookstores they call it self-help, magazines, uh, even TV programs like Oprah. Um, Although I thought that would give rise to other programs and Seems nobody does it quite like Oprah. Um, Dr. Phil has tried to do it, but it's just sort of a cheap commercial version. Oprah often will come through as something really inspirational. And then in addition to the study, Virginia, I think the practice of mindfulness, which is what the retreat was about, bringing ourselves back to our senses, back to what's happening right now, and observing it without judgment. And finally, the practice of meditation itself, or contemplation, which we often refer to as reflection, where we look at our lives from the present moment, but we look at the past and plan the future, not trapped in the past or frightened of the future, but right here, right now in meditation, reflecting on that heartache, that emptiness, that feeling of loss or betrayal, that anger, that fear, and allow it to speak to us. We don't get much in normal consciousness except a reaction and an opposition. But Mm -hmm. when we get deeply relaxed in meditation and open ourselves with a quiet mind and a calm heart, to the message that is hidden in the seeming adversity or conflict, that's when it enriches us. That's when the light dawns and we go, oh, I get it. Uh, Oh, I see. Oh, I understand now. Mm -hmm. And that has to become a practice. Right. I think it's fascinating that we're... um here talking about these teachings, which are like, what, 2,500 years old? And yeah. and, and the new teaching, the, the new studies of um, the science of emotions, um, uh, neuroscience, and all that field is like so new that I'm just amazing at how much we could, I, I'm, I'm amazed at how much we could accomplish if we, you know, bring those the old science with the new, um, the new learning about uh, the science of emotion and the brain, and it will bring those two together. Maybe we'll learn well, I hope to so. know one thing to be other that they are. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> be okay. We will. I'm, yeah. I'm a big supporter of the so-called new science, whether it's quantum physics or the research into the brain and so-called neuroplasticity and. My only concern is that this involves real expensive machinery, 
um, affordable only by major research hospitals and universities and other institutions. And uh, while I welcome that personally, um, we don't have to have access to that. To, I mean, that will validate what what the teachers have said for millennia. But at the end, all you need to do really is pay attention to focus on your breath, on your senses, and then to calm the self, to still the body, calm the heart, quiet the mind, to create that mindful detachment. And then you can look at your thoughts without being driven by them. And as you said, experience the feeling without being compelled to react, um, often in foolish and regrettable ways. So I'm glad for all the science and the and the breakthroughs, but you know, if we just sit on the porch for ten minutes once a day and relax and breathe, we and, and then read some inspiring literature and work on developing better friendships and hang out with people that love and support us. Um, I think there's a lot we can do on our own and in small groups and and uh, so we don't have to have the million-dollar biofeedback machine or, you know, these... We don't have to wait for the scientists to do it for us. I welcome their input, but we've got everything we need to realize the truth of who we are. That's the good right. news. How about right. a parting shot, final comment? Right. <laughs> well, always good talking with you, Michael, and again, thanks. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Good. Thank you, Virginia. Mahalo <laughs> and right. aloha. Aloha. Bye-bye. All right. And uh, let's see. How come I'm not being able to mute Virginia here? I'm not sure why. But I got Robert online also from West Los Angeles. Hello, Robert. Aloha, Michael. How are you today? Aloha. Better and better, thanks. How are you? Pretty good. Outstanding. Well, I'm average. I'm normal. I'm not right. what I say. <laughs> and just to put an exclamation point on all this, um, unfortunately, um, in the, oh, I don't know, what do we call it, the airy-fairy, the airy-fairy bliss ninniness of a certain faction of the New Age movement, um, a lot of focus on the really uh, valuable um, uh, evolutionary growth potential has been lost. And it isn't ever in the highest realm of our function. It's in the lowest one. It's in the drag point is where the evolution is to be had. It isn't in our higher minds or our higher selves. It's in the part of us that's evolving the slowest. And what is that? Well, your first fetter. And not to really put a fine point on it, it's not just this sense of being a separate self or a sense of being a self at all. But it's the feeling continuum 
or the continuum of feeling from day to day that gives rise to that. And that's what, unfortunately, people have uh, fought to defend and killed other people uh, to preserve. Um, Obviously, it's pretty hard to defend a feeling. It's an inward thing. But when you talk of attachment... You're talking about everything that we use in the world of seeming concreteness to anchor a specific feeling within. Well, why? And the sad and simple truth is, is that as composite beings, as multidimensional beings, survival has been and is a very real issue, whether it's on an individual level or a collective level. Whatever our belief in an absolute being or an absolute matrix or a ground of being from which all this comes about, the reality is it seems to need or require these aggregate forms to know itself, to experience itself, etc., that's a really interesting proposition. Um, I heard someone once raise the question, um, maybe God did not choose to manifest the physical universe. Maybe he had to. Perhaps. What if God, what if, what if God whatever you want to, however we want to envision that as an energetic field, whatever, something that could birth itself and act as its own midwife uh, and and surrender itself into a process where the end result was unknown. That's the existential nightmare for any individual. The the true inner conversion, uh, what what has been called, um, you know, the the where you come through the other side and you don't recognize your face in the mirror. Uh, this is a great nightmare. And it's often as simple, the starting point is as simple as our attempts to maintain the basic inward sense of security that we all have. Once we get some sense of it that's born out of some familiarity of a certain combination of things in the environment, the people around us, the things we stuff in the space we live in, what we do every day, our address, our phone number, who calls us, what we read, what we think about, what we see, etc. All that combines to produce this matrix of attachment that anchors that inward sense of security. Anything that threatens that, we will fight against. And it's this quest, really, to maintain that inner security that is the drag point in our evolution. That is the ultimate attachment. And what I would offer anyone, as I've said many times and I've posted recently, meditation heals our relationship with existence. People might think that's a funny statement, but the reality is that each one of us, as a monad, does have a wound. We have this, there is a certain amount of existential horror alive in any one of us, and we resolve that through meditation. 
The other thing I would say in, in closing here, because I know you got a it's 2.30 already here on the West Coast. Um, in any moment that anyone, you're talking about practical application, in any moment that uh, we feel things are becoming unhinged and things are falling apart and disintegrating, if we're observant, we will see a basic and reflexive desire followed usually by some action to resurrect what I would call the way things were, inwardly and outwardly. You know, that feeling of, God, I just wish I could feel the way I used to about things. Um, sometimes that isn't always the greatest thing. In many cases, we're being asked by life, to go to the next level. And instead of trying to resolve the confusion and the uncertainty within, we're being asked to walk around in that and to actually sort of oh, dwell in that, uh, as strange as it might seem. Instead of that inner feeling as being one of concreteness and solidity, uh, it should be one that is perhaps quite a bit more fluid, uh, quite a bit more dynamic, up to and including perhaps a feeling of being uneasy, you know, just not quite set with the world. Um, that's really a state of being that's on its way to being the next step of our evolution. When we fight that, is when uh, things really start dragging for us as uh, individuals and as a collective. You remind me of a guy I met in college who had like five master's degrees and four PhDs. And uh, he just loved being a student. He, he had no desire to leave. He's probably still there. Uh, <laughs> I think... Until he had every master's degree and every Ph.D., he wasn't going to leave. Had the means to do that and had the curiosity to. Well, what I hear you saying is, what if God doesn't know everything yet? And that we may be the critical agents in the role of its expression and outreach to know still more. The universe is expanding physically. Uh, perhaps that's an allegory for uh, the universe expanding in other ways also. And, and maybe we are the agents of that expansion. It's, a, of course, a direct challenge to the omnipotence, uh, the all-knowing, the all-powerful uh, concept of divinity that's been handed to us. But I like the idea that you know, if God did rest on the seventh day, it went right back to work on day eight and uh, is continuing to grow and expand and know itself perhaps through us. Yeah, I don't think that, uh, I think that there is an absolute state. There was once an absolute condition that perhaps as a background vibration still exists. But the reality is, God is the becoming thing. 
God is the edge of that current, uh, that flow, that field, whatever, that is becoming something. You say that very definitively. You feel strongly about that. You say the reality is. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I think. I think that is just. That is that is the state of things as they are. That is where we are at. That is where creation. That is the point creation has reached. Um, God is amidst it all, but as a becoming thing, as part of the process, and it's multidimensional. So it can be as screwy a situation as God awakening God to itself. Right. right. What a paradox. Right. You know, there are things that we have yet to think that have yet to occur to us, uh, which just may be too too wacky to, to even consider or, or have been dismissed. But, um, you know, we, we, we may have thrown out the baby with the bathwater in many cases. Um, as far as your... Your, uh, your, you know, the reference you made to the the, the all-powerful, omnipotent um, obo daddy, the God that knows everything. That uh, to me, this is one of the old orienting myths that is used um, for comfort, for security. Uh, again, it's it's just part of that that matrix of, of outer anchorage, you know, that enables us to. To, to create a solidified sense of uh, being within that's relatively constant. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that there isn't a field of potential because there's a lot of strange and bizarre situations, not the least of which is savants. Savanta, if, if you ever study savants, and there's not many of them, and you look at what they're accessing in terms of information, it's pretty clear that they're tuning us into the fact that there is a greater field of mind than any one of us, or maybe even greater than the collective itself. When you get the conscious self out of the way, anyway. Right. And, you know, yes, so yes, there is something bigger than any one of us, but as far as a fixed, as far as that all-knowing being a fixed unchanging, immovable, immutable? I don't think so. I think the only thing that that can be shown to be that is empty space itself, which, curiously enough, as the physicists have said, contain, you know, any, what was it? It was David Bohm that said that any cubic centimeter of pure empty space, completely void of anything else, just space, Contained more potential energy than all the universe. <laughs> well, there, there's your creative power, sheer yeah, emptiness. Yeah, we have no idea what's out there. The dark matter, and the more we know, the the uh, less we know. We talk about it. If in 2017, if we're still talking about it, we'll be we'll be revisiting these these same subjects, and you know, science will have answered many more questions, and we still won't know anything. Robert, thank you for your call. You got a parting shot? Um, in any moment uh, that you feel uh, that anyone feels insecure, that the rug's being pulled out from under you, and you wish you could resurrect the way things were the good old days, 
examine that feeling closely because the pot of gold is close by. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. Aloha. And uh, let's see, let me go back and remute Robert. Okay, we have a few other people that have uh, interestingly joined us on the telephone, but I don't see any hands up. And if we go back to the text messages, um, there's a couple of new ones here. I don't understand. Uh, Becky in Lakeland, which I think it must be Florida. What a, I don't know what this means, Becky. What about sight? You're going to let go of your sight. I don't know what that means. Uh, Got to give, <laughs> gotta give me a little more than that. Um, in Irvine, Robert says, I remember a line from the movie What Dreams May Come, that everyone's hell is different. It's not all fire and pain. The real hell is your life gone wrong. Yeah, that works for me. If Jesus said that heaven is within, then it seems to me that hell can be experienced here as well, and that life goes wrong when we fail to understand who we are and not let go of our attachments and our desires for them, for those things we attach to. Yeah, I totally agree. The idea that hell is a place or heaven is a place, um, again, uh, that makes sense in a, in a physical universe where there is space and time. But by all accounts, the metaphysical universe, the spiritual universe, has neither space nor time. So any place is, again, a holdover from ancient times when people were much simpler and primarily illiterate. So uh, where do you go when you die? Nowhere. You know, just because the movie, you're in a movie theater, just because the movie ran out, doesn't mean it's not still in the projector. It's just not being reflected on the wall anymore. Where'd the movie go? Nowhere. It's still in the projector. They're going to rewind it and play it again for the 2 o'clock show. In L.A., Barnaby is with us. He says, hola from Los Angeles. Hello, Barnaby. And Jetta and Nate and HB. Are you thinking of doing a lecture series or a retreat on the mainland at any point to get better exposure or question? How do you really know what your true meaning and or vocation in life is? Peace, love, and understanding. Uh, I had not really thought much about doing a retreat on the mainland. Might do a lecture, not a lecture series, but, you know, I might come and do some sort of pre presentation in the mainland at some point, some expo might appear at that. Um, but I, not a retreat. We're in the perfect retreat location. Uh, retreat means to get away from it all. So if I went to the city to do a retreat, it wouldn't make much sense. I could come to the city and do a lecture or a seminar or something, and I would be open to that. And as far as your question, Barnaby, how do you know what uh, 
is your true vocation in life or the meaning of your life? That's a great question. I'm going to give you a real short, simple answer. I hope it doesn't sound flippant, but um, it's in your heart, not your head. It's what you love. You will feel your calling uh, in terms of vocation or avocation or uh, reason for for being here uh, as a love. Um, and, and those who have found that will be the first to tell you it's incredible because it brings meaning to your life. There's a difference between the purpose of life and the meaning of life. The purpose of life is rather esoteric to describe. It's uh, capital P, purpose. But meaning is very personal. And um, meaning is what you bring to it, what you love to do, what you care about. And so, again, reflect in quiet states of meditation and contemplation on what you really love to do. It may require that as I've said to many clients over the year, it may require that you keep your day job. You may live in a society that that does not honor what you love to do. All right. Uh, the Western world does not respect a uh, a monk, for example, with a begging bowl that goes around unemployed. We call them homeless and unemployed, right? Rather than revere them as a holy person. And, and, you know, appreciate the opportunity to be of service, to feed them, to shelter them, and so on. Uh, you'd say, get that hobo out of here, you know. Hey, go to the homeless shelter, you, you monk. <laughs> and so it is with being a musician, for example, or an artist. Uh, that may be your passion, you say, but I can't make any money doing that. Well, then keep your day job. But don't give up your passion, right? So, um, and then I've got somebody who just goes, la, 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 I love it, enjoyed it. So, no name, but thank you. I'm glad you loved it and enjoyed it. Close your eyes. We'll do a quick meditation. Get comfortable, provided this is a good time for you to do this. A couple of head rolls and some shoulder shrugs. Take a nice, slow, deep breath or two. Pulling in strength and power as you inhale. Hold for a moment as you peak, and then as you exhale, just as slowly. Feel the relaxation. Feel the letting go. Do it again. Pulling in strength and power. Feel the vitality as you hold for a moment and now exhaling fully, going all the way out beyond where you'd normally stop. And then turn your breathing over to autopilot. Let your body breathe itself. Continue to feel and sense and create A letting go feeling, safe, relaxed, muscles unwinding, feel the letting go in your body. 
experience yourself as balanced and centered, as vertically aligned and receptive to above, causative to the world around you. Experience this L-shaped alignment, receptive to the downward impress of spirit as love and light, filling you, feeling filled and full and fulfilled, warm and radiant, and then offering out on the horizontal, freely and without condition or reservation, that very love and light, needing nothing in return, needing nothing in return, for you simply enhance the flow and receive more on the vertical as you give it away freely on the horizontal. Needing not even gratitude or to be appreciated. Do your work anonymously and secretly so that the ego is less tempted to take credit for it or seek some sort of acknowledgement for being charitable. The original term charity, though now archaic and rather obsolete, means the one life, the one family, the one thing. Today it's come to mean give your clothes to the goodwill and alms to the poor to be charitable. But originally, charity with a capital C, charity, was the acknowledgement that you're one family. In Hawaii, this is called Ohana, your Ohana. This morning, we went to a small grocery store here in upcountry Maui to pick up bread, milk, a few things. Talking about the weather with the storekeeper, he referred to us as his family. As you might say to someone, you know, my friend, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, my family, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't even know our names. But we're part of his family. That's the aloha spirit. All from the same rainbow. Don't you see? When you experience that oneness and can call upon that wholeness, and you appreciate that the entire universe exists within you, indeed, in every cell and every molecule and every atom and subatomic particle in your being, lives the entire universe. And you are an indivisible part of the one life 
It becomes easier to release that first fetter, the lie, the myth, that your identity is essentially that of a separated individual. It becomes easier for you to trust in the teachings, to rely upon them, to to practice spiritual wisdom wherever you find it. Not because it's spiritual wisdom, not because you read it in a book that somebody said was a credible book or because someone you respect told you it was true, you cut the second fetter, doubting the Dharma and the teaching when you rely upon it. You trust it. You live it. See if it works. And the third fetter, the reliance upon rules and regulations and dogma, and scripture, and ritual, and ceremony, and religious superstition. Let it all go in favor of allowing your heartfelt experience, your longing for love. As we said a few weeks ago in this class, the longing of the part to be whole. Make an approach. If you don't feel the wholeness, make an approach to the wholeness. And sometimes that longing, that love, carries an ache. It might even hurt. There might be times when you wish to turn away or push away from love itself because it seems to involve heartache, broken hearts, loss and grief and suffering. But the only thing that's lost ever in this world is the appearance of things physical things, seemingly separated things, and all of those things pass. Nothing that you gain in this world of form will you keep forever, and yet something is eternal and infinite. When everything else falls away, one thing does remain. And that's love. Not merely the emotion of love, but the wisdom, the understanding, the light, the consciousness, the awareness, the peace, the grace, the compassion, the tolerance and the patience, the kindness and the generosity that is the truth of eternity and infinity. When everything else that is not 
love falls away. It is love that remains. The truth. And you've already got it. Just honor it and respect it. Worship love. Want to know all about it. All of the magic and all of the mystery and all of the wonder. If your life is going to be wonderful and filled with wonder, you must wonder about what? About love. Decide to know all about it. Everything you can learn about love. Over and over, immerse yourself in it. Luxuriate in it. Risk love. How much of it do you suppose you can handle? It's like looking into light. If there is darkness, a little bit of light is a welcome thing, but when you turn and face the light, sometimes it's too bright to look at. How much love can you handle? Dedicate your meditation to the liberation of all sentient beings. Remind yourself whenever you meditate in this way that you are a part of a group. Not only the group listening now live, but the group of those who will listen at some point in the future. And the group of all the millions of people who are meditating. Anytime you go into a meditative level, know that there are millions of human beings at that same moment on this earth planet that aspire in the same way to love. And feel that group consciousness, that group awareness as a harmonious approach to the unity we seek to go home again, home again. The longing of the part to be whole. The longing, the urge of the separated to be unified, of the lost to be found. Reorient yourself to the room in which you sit. Remember what you'll see in a moment when you finally open your eyes. Take a nice, slow, deep breath. Hold as you peek for just a moment. And as you exhale, uh, feel the letting go and open your eyes now. Wide awake, alert. Back in the room, feeling fine, refreshed, rested, better than before. Thanks for being here. Join us next week. Watch for the newsletter. Use the link at the bottom of the newsletter to forward it to your friends, people you know who are looking for this kind of personal and spiritual development information. And if you like this and want more, listen to Finding Yourself in Paradise. We've got six free programs and Ten favorites, 16 programs all all together that are available to you absolutely free. 
premium audio programs that I do with my business partner of 35 years, Stephen Snyder, at FocusedPassion.com. Subscribe for 99 cents a program at FocusedPassion.com. There's an ED in there, the W's.FocusedPassion.com. Click on the button that says, just send me the free stuff. Leave your first name and an email address. You'll get a free built-in player with six programs in it. Subscribe to the podcast, Empower Yourself in Paradise. And if you click the radio button that says, sign me up and send me the free stuff too, then a panel will open up. You can enter your ATM, credit card, debit card info. 99 cents a show if you subscribe. 4.95 a show if you buy from the archive one at a time. FocusedPassion.com Thanks a lot. Mahalo. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.